We are going uh, through the book of James. And Matt Nix, this is Matt Nix's baby. He, he uh, suggested that we go through James. He put together the schedule and he kicked off uh, the book of James and he's doing most of the heavy lifting. And Matt is doing a fantastic job. Absolutely, give him a hand. He, uh, he has encouraged me personally uh, in my faith at, a, at a, I think, a, a critical time, especially when, when things get, get difficult. So I, I'm grateful uh, for, for Matt Nix and the work that, that he's been uh, doing, the way that he's been serving us with, with, I think, great insights into the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done, and the difference that it makes in, in our life. So uh, we're looking at James uh, chapter 2 now. And uh, the first section of chapter, chapter 2, and I want to start with this. Um, I, I think that you share uh, this observation that I've had over the years. And uh, I think you'll agree with me that it's nothing new. That churches everywhere have a big problem. And that big problem, at best, can creep in if, you don't, if you're not on guard against it. Or at worst, that big problem can be just rampant in denial about it, even cherished. And that big problem, that big problem that churches have everywhere is worthless religion. It's worthless religion. Last week in James, we read that, that, that he was warning us about this worthless religion. And, he's, and, and what we learn is that this worthless religion, it puffs people up so much that they run off at the mouth with a critical spirit and a joylessness that's just oppressive to people. It's a follow-the-rules approach to religion that, that fills people with pride, and then those prideful people tear others down. I remember uh, attending a church service where one of the ushers, ushers was wearing a 3 piece suit. He seemed pretty proud of his three-piece suit. And then my, my friend had begged her dad to come to a worship service, and he would never. He said, no, those judgmental people, I don't have anything to do with it. For the first time in many years, he darkened the doors of a church, and the first thing this usher said to him is, do you mind taking your hat off in the house of the Lord? Guess what? He never came back. My friend was crushed. This worthless religion is destructive it, it, and it wears people out and, and because enough is, is never enough. So what happens is that sometimes people come, become addicted to this worthless religion and then they become exhausted by trying to live up to like this endless list of demands. And this worthless religion keeps people just stuck and stagnant. There's no power in it. I mean, it might be able to clean you up a little bit on the outside so you can fake it real good, but it can't change your heart. And as a result, people are frustrated and crushed by, by guilt because they're stuck in this, in this empty, destructive life. And this worthless religion turns people off. If, if you have ever looked at... Uh, people who are living in this kind of worthless religion that puffs up and destroys people. And, and, and if you've ever thought, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with it. If you ever thought that, let me tell you something. You are in good company, right? You're in good company. Because 
James doesn't want to have anything to do with that either. James, who wrote what we just read, is turned off by this kind of religion too. And in last week's passage, James says this, that he says that this person's religion is worthless. And so he writes this letter uh, to correct this messed up religion with true religion, a religion, he says, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, right? So one thing Matt Nix told us, was this, this guy James who wrote this book was the, was the brother of Jesus, right? The one Jesus who invented Christianity, uh, James was raised with Jesus, he lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus, bathed with Jesus, grew up with Jesus, doubted Jesus, came to trust Jesus as God, became a disciple of Jesus, and then he became the leader of the Jerusalem church of Jesus. So, James knows a thing or two about what Jesus had in mind when it came to Christianity, right? Right? So he wants to correct destructive, self-serving religion in the church with pure religion, what he calls pure religion. And then he shows us what it looks like, the beautiful fruit that it produces as opposed to the destructive cancer that tears people down. Now, before we see what this, this, this beautiful fruit looks like, before we see how this is lived out, it's critical see, to see the big idea here, all right? And the big idea is this. True religion starts with being and leads to doing, okay? This is the big idea. You might not get that right now, but hopefully we'll unpack it in a way that you understand it. But true religion starts with being and then leads to doing. There are two forms of self-serving destructive religion. And one just focuses on being. And it says, you know what? I'm a Christian. That means I'm forgiven. So guess what? I can do whatever I want, right? That's messed up and destructive. The other one focuses just on doing. And it says, of course I'm a Christian. Look at all the awesome stuff I'm doing. That's messed up and destructive as well. But true religion starts with being and leads to doing. The two are absolutely inseparable. And what this means is that what you do flows from who you are. The world says that what you do determines who you are. But the reality is what you do flows from who you are. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit, and we're going to see how James explains this, this big idea. Last week, we learned that it's just, it just makes no sense at all if you just listen to the word and don't do it. If you just listen to it and not live it out. If we don't have any desire whatsoever to do the, the word, if we have no desire whatsoever to live it out, you know what that means? It means we're just a bunch of posers. It means that we're fake Christians. What good is that? None of us live this out perfectly, and so the question is, why don't we? Why don't we do the Word? Now, you heard about the women's Bible study going through James, and in their workbook for this section, what it does is it tells you to look at the verses right before chapter 2 so that you understand these verses here that are in chapter 2. So let's do that briefly. 
because it shows us that we don't do the word because we, who, we have forgotten who we really are. We're just totally confused about our identity. James uh, had just said, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror and then he walks away and he forgets what he looks like. Last week, I saw in the mirror that I had a dried piece of skin hanging from the bottom of my nose between my nostrils. It was gross because it looked like something else. And I guess I needed moisturizer or something, but I got distracted because I'm a guy. Didn't do anything about it. Went up about my day, ran my errands all over the place, talked to countless people. And I was in a good mood. Hey, how you doing? Well, I was okay until I saw the thing on your nose, right? And it, was late, it wasn't until later that I saw that hanging there and I was like, oh, my goodness. I forgot what I looked like. Now, am I the only one that's ever happened to something like that? You know what it's like. James refers to a mirror when he talks about the Bible because... Before the Bible tells you what you need to do, it needs to show you who you really are. You need to, uh, to see uh, your reflection. You need to see who you really are apart from Christ. You need to see the imperfections and, and the sin. You, we need to have, uh, not just so you're crushed and feel all bad and everything, like, so you can get a diagnosis of, of what's going on. Right? You want the doctor to tell you What's wrong with you so that something can be done with it? So this is not just to insult you. And so, so the Bible shows us who we are apart from Christ, our sin, our imperfections. But then it also shows us who we really are in Christ and clothed in his righteousness and how glorious that is. Right? So, so the Bible says, you know, live with justice, and it, and it shows you how. And it says, be merciful, and it shows you how. And it says, you know, live with in integrity, and it shows you how. But you need to know that James does not view the Bible as just some kind of rule book. You can't just do it. You can't just stop it. Living a great life is not just a, a matter of grinding it out. It's not just a matter of just, you know, white-knuckle determination. It's not just a matter of, of discipline. The Bible says to forgive. The Bible says to have courage. The Bible says get generous, and then we don't. And if you're anything like me, what do you say? All I got to do is just try harder, right? Maybe you've been trying harder for years, But now you're crushed with frustration and guilt because you can't live in denial anymore. Maybe you've given up. I, I know people who've been in the church for years and they walked away from it and you ask them why and they said it was just too difficult. I could not do it. I was tired of feeling guilty, so I'm out. He did not understand what it was all about, probably because he was hearing a message that totally missed the point. 
And so maybe that's you, and now you, you just don't want anything to do with the religion because you're just tired. You're just tired of trying harder. Well, James believes that true religion is not just about trying harder. So if we can't be forgiving, if we can't be courageous, if we can't be generous, if we can't be kind to people, if we can't be honest with people, if we can't be self-controlled, it's because we forgot who we are. Now, my hope is that you're asking, so what can we do? How can we do the word? And if you're taking notes, we can if we keep looking in the mirror and never stop looking. Last week, James said, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we look at people who get this in the scriptures, like the apostle Paul. How did he handle prison? How did he handle being shipwrecked? How did he handle being beaten with rods? How did he handle the persecution that that he endured? Did he say, you know what? I just got to be joyful because that's the Christian thing to do. Is that what he said? No. He continued to look in the mirror and he remembered, you know what? I am someone who needs God's grace and God freely and lavishly poured his grace out upon me. And then that was able to lead him to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because it brings me into a fuller experience of my Lord and Savior. He didn't just white knuckle a positive can-do attitude. And then you look at Stephen, who was executed by being surrounded by people with rocks and threw rocks at his head until he was dead, right? And while they were throwing rocks at him, did he say, you know what? I just need to be calm and carry on because that's the Christian thing to do. No. It says that he looked and he remembered who he was. He saw a vision. He saw the Son of Man standing um, at the right hand of God. And while they were stoning him to death, you know what he prayed? While these people were stoning him to death, he prayed, God, don't hold this sin against them. Do you think that's just something he mustered up because it was the right thing to do? He continued to look. And then Jesus, how in the world did he face the cross? In the upper room with his disciples, knowing that soon he's going to be arrested, nailed to a cross, and that it was going to be physically torturous, but then he was going to experience a separation from from God. He was going to take the sin of the world upon himself and endure the hell of that. How is he able to focus on needs of others in this time of greatest need? He continued to look. He remembered who he was. John 13 says, Jesus, knowing that the time had come for him to leave this world, knowing that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In other words, Jesus, knowing who he was, he got up from the meal, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. If I knew I were living my last moments on earth, I would not be doing that. There's no way. It's not on my bucket list. 
And when he was on the cross, even hanging on the cross, he was caring for his friends and family. And on the cross, he took the punishment you and I deserve. Why? Because the truth is, he loves you too much to live without you. And, and you know what's weird? We forget that. And then we live our lives as if he's going to forget us. You struggle with worry. You struggle with anxiety. You struggle with, with overwhelm. I do. You struggle with living for yourself and looking out for yourself because no one else will, and, and you're consumed with that. You know why we do that? It's because we forgot who we are. You are God's precious son. You are God's precious daughter. That's who you are. The cherished children of the creator of the universe. The mirror shows us who we are. And it shows us the gospel, the good news. And, and here's the deal. On our own, apart from Christ, we're in the gutter, man. We're in the gutter. But listen to me. You're not going to get this. You're going to understand what I say, but you're not going to get this. In Christ, in Christ, <laughs> you are infinitely exalted. In Christ, you are infinitely exalted. On our own, we are so sinful and we are so weak, we could never, ever become a Christian by just doing religious stuff, right? Jesus had to come and die for our doing, right? And so he saves you and he lifts you up and he exalts you. Whatever it is that, 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 that's got you just that's just dragging you down, whatever it is that has entrapped you, whatever it is that has overwhelmed you, whatever it is that is sucking the life out of you, you know that you are exalted in Christ and that he saves you, he lifts you up, and he exalts you because Jesus has done everything that you should have done for you. So you know what this means? This means something you won't fully understand in this life but I think it will spark your imagination enough to, I think, continue to, to, for you to continue to meditate on it and find hope and strength in it, that even now you have a seat at the right hand of God. Even now, whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever you're failing at, even now you have a seat at the right hand of God. That is good news. And so, if you trust, look, don't trust in your doing. Don't trust in your doing. It will never be good enough. So let it go. Trust in Jesus' doing. Trust in what he has done. And if you trust in his doing, that means that you are accepted. That means that you are welcome. That means that you are adopted. That means that you are exalted. And now you are free to be who God created you to be. And only then do you have the freedom to do God's good word with joy. That right there is true religion, right? The big idea is that 
who you are leads to what you do. What you do flows from who you are. And now James shows us what it, what it looks like. He shows us the big idea lived out. And you know what James does? He applies it to our gatherings. Gatherings like this, you know, in a, in a, in a worship a service, specifically how we treat one another. And what are we to do? Well, he says, don't show favoritism. Instead, treat all people without exception, with equal dignity and respect. All people. And James gives us a case study, but this happens in different ways. So, so this is incredibly relevant to everyone. And look what he says. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For for a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in, in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, he says, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you know what, you stand over there, sit, or sit at my feet. If you say this, have you, if you do this, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He doesn't say judges with impolite thoughts. He calls them evil thoughts, right? And at the beginning, when he says, show no partiality, um, the plain translation says, don't show favoritisms, plural. Okay? James is saying, even though I'm giving you this one case, it has other applications. In this case, we see a church where the more, uh, people with more money look down on people that have no money. People with more money are given more respect and, and more honor than those who have no money. And James says, this is wicked prejudice. This is evil discrimination. It's not just impolite. It's sin. And he's not just dealing with that favoritism, but with all favoritisms. Like, like a church where, where the majority race is given preference over a minority race. Or, or a church where the cool and the attractive and the, the popular clearly look down on the uncool and unattractive and unpopular. And James is saying that is evil. You know, as a society, you know, I think we can find ourselves agreeing with James saying, yeah, you're right, man, that is totally messed up. And we've tried to eliminate it through laws and regulations, but it still happens, doesn't it? even in the church. Why? Because we forgot who we are. We forgot who Jesus is. We forgot about his grace. We forgot that people are made in the image of God. We forgot that it's about who we are, not about what we do. James believes that what you do flows from who you are. And so he doesn't just say, you know what, guys? Knock it off. No, he tells us how. How can we do this? We can do this, if you're taking notes, by remembering who we are. And the plain, I want you to see this. The plain translation of verse 1 reads this way. Look at it. He says, As believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory, don't show favoritism. So the key to not showing favoritism 
is by remembering that Jesus is the glory. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The key is to remember that Jesus is the glory. Now, for a devout Jew like James, to be saying this, this is amazing. Because what is glory? I, I don't think I will do it justice in this sermon to try to explain uh, glory. It has everything to do with ultimate importance and significance and, and weightiness. And we say, man, her, her words were weighty. Or, or we say, man, that's, that's heavy, right? So this rich guy walks in the door showing off his glory. I matter. I'm impressive. Look at me. Look what I drive. Look at my duds. I'm impressive. I'm a heavy hit. I'm a heavy hitter. And it's an obvious contrast, which is the goal to the poor man who has no glory. How did God demonstrate his glory? Not through like bling and, and stylish, expensive clothes, but through what's known as the Shekinah glory cloud. In the wilderness, in the tabernacle, in the temple, this cloud, this cloud was illuminated by fire from within. During the day, it was the most brilliant cloud. And at night, it was the greatest pillar of fire. And God is showing to his people, look, I'm here. You can't get too close to me. My glory is too powerful and you'll die. And, and what we find is that, that God's glory is, is dangerous and desirable. Remember Moses on the mountain? He makes the ultimate request of God. Uh, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, I can't because it'll kill you. And God's glory is dangerous because he is infinite and we are finite. Because he is holy and we are sinful. But like Moses, we want that glory. If you know your heart, you know that you want glory more than anything else. You know, it is hell for you to be told, I don't know you. I never knew you. I don't want to know you. Nobody knows you. It is hell for you to be told that I don't want to have anything to do with you. To be irreversibly and totally ignored. The thing deep down, if we're honest, if we examine our hearts a little bit, the, the thing we were afraid of is to not matter. To make no difference at all. When you're gone, everyone forgets you, so you get a glimpse of God and his glory, and you long for that. You want a part of that. Sociologists, Christians, non-Christians, doesn't matter, will tell you that the reason that there is so much suffering and evil in the world is because people cannot and will not accept the fact that they are temporary, right? After several generations die, after the universe dies, nothing we do counts, and people can't stand that idea, and so people grasp for wealth, or whatever it is that they want. Get while the getting's good. Step over each other. Step on each other. And so we, we try to prove that, that we exist, that, that we count, that we're not whole, uh, hollow, that, that we matter enough to last forever. You know what the Bible teaches? In the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, I messed that up, like in a de vida, right? The Bible says that in the Garden of Eden, 
we had that glory. God had given it to us. But then we lost it. We lived with God and we lived in his glory, but we lost it. Now, James is saying something astonishing to his fellow Jews. You know, culturally, the Jews didn't buy that this poor, crucified, shamed Jew named Jesus could possibly be the glorious Messiah that they've been waiting for. How could any Jew say, you just can't show favoritism if you see as Jesus as glory? James is saying that Jesus is the way that you see God. How do you see the glory of the rich man? Through his like rings and clothes. How, how do you see the glory of God in the Old Testament with like this blazing fire, right? But how do you see God in Jesus? He is the clothing of God, the rings on God's fingers. Jesus is the brilliant cloud and the pillar of fire. Jesus is the very glory of God. So do you want to know and experience the glory of God? You look to Jesus, right? You, you want to see the glorious wisdom of God? Then, then you read the Gospels and you see Jesus. You want to see the glorious power of God? Then you look at Jesus' miracles. You want to see the glorious love of God? Then you see Jesus hanging on the cross for you. And his love will melt you down and fill you up with Jesus' love and loyalty. Imagine what Jesus must have been like. The one who wrote this is the one who lived with him. The one who was raised with him, was poor with him. He knew Jesus like no one else. And after all that, James cannot deny that Jesus is the perfect Christ, who is the very glory of God. And Jesus shares his glory with those who know they need it. So James says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Jesus not only shows us God's glory, he brings us God's glory. Paul shows us how when he says, For you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in God's glory, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, may be rich. Jesus died to pay for our sin, to purify us, to be the temple of God, and now the glory can live in us. The glory can live through us. The ultimate glory is the one who had the glory but gave it up so that you could have it. I'm telling you right now, you might not fully grasp this, but I want you to continue to wrestle with this and meditate on this because there's nothing more valuable or more important than this. Nothing. Jesus prays to God the Father before he dies, and he says, the glory that you, Father, have given to me, I have given to them, meaning you. Do you believe that this life is all there is? You know how empty that is? No wonder it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. 
No wonder we're grasping for whatever it is that we can get in this life. But what if Jesus is the Son of God come to earth to give up his glory so that you could have it? Then Jim says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. He doesn't say you are being impolite. You are committing sin. A sin that Jesus paid for through his crucifixion. And James says, you are free from that sin because in Christ, you last. In Christ, you count. In Christ, this world is not all there is. In Christ, the majesty of the stars are nothing compared to you. Rich or poor, you don't have to grasp for glory. So now, You are free to honor and love and serve the poor knowing that God was generous and gracious and merciful to you. If you see that, you won't show favoritism. You won't discriminate. You won't be prejudiced. And instead, you will be generous and gracious and merciful to those that the world does not love or respect. So, if you see the glory of Jesus, you will never be impressed or dazzled by the world's glory because you've seen the real deal in Jesus. And you will be happy to sit with people of lower position than you. You will be happy to talk with people who are not as cool as you or as culturally refined as you. If you see the glory of Jesus, it will it will continue to change the kind of uh, church that we are. We must not be a church that is drawn to the rich and impressive, the cool, and then overlook the the poor and the the broken. That kind of self-serving, self-righteous nonsense disappears when we see that all we need is to be clothed with Christ's glory. James says, if you discriminate, you have become judges with evil thoughts. It is messed up, destructive thinking, and you've forgotten who you are. If we want to be a church that shares God's grace, if if we want to reflect God's acceptance, if we want to reflect his generosity, if we want to stand against worthless religion that tears people down, if we want to be a place that, that just welcomes everybody no matter what, we look in the mirror. The Bible shows us who we are in Christ before it tells us what to do. And true religion starts with knowing who you are and it leads to what you do. So remember who you are in Christ. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, forgive us for thinking that that we don't need as much mercy as the other guy or as much grace as as that other uh, woman. That that, that you did not have to stoop quite as low to save us as those other people. God, it is so easy for us to forget how spiritually poor we are apart 
from you. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our discrimination and our prejudice. Forgive us for forgetting who we are in Christ. You tell us that, that you chose us, that you adopted us, that you paid for our sins and, uh, through Jesus on, on the cross, that, that he raised from the dead to give us a new life. And so often our attitude is, thanks God, but it's not quite enough. I also need this. And we chase these other things in ways that destroy us and other people because we're grasping for our own glory. which is just a cheap counterfeit. God, help us to find true joy and satisfaction in you. Protect us from worthless religion. Overwhelm us with your glory. Give us eyes to see your glory. In this moment, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I I pray that you would guard uh, our, our minds and hearts. Help us not to be distracted by anything else. Help us to reflect on on uh, whatever it is that, that you have said to us through your message and through your word. Help us to reflect on that. Make something stand out for us. Primarily who Jesus is and what he's done for us because we were so desperate. And through that, through Christ, we have his glorious riches. God, overwhelm us with that in this moment as we think about that. God, we pray that it would lead us to humility and give us the courage to confess our, our, our sin and help us to rest in your grace and in your glory. We pray these things in your name.